0: Welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. We are nearing the end of our series on stroke, and this is a really good place to start talking about how do you synthesize all of this information. Dr. Humanko Koservani is with us today. He's the medical director of the Inpatient Stroke Unit an assistant professor in the Division of Neurology and the Department of Medicine at University of Toronto, Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. He's also a staff intensivist at Southlake Regional Health Center. And he recently was the lead author on a publication that discusses the concept of a protected code stroke. And the idea behind this is, if you need stroke resuscitation or quick evaluation, and you need to do it in a code setting or with code resources, but you're dealing with an infectious epidemic like COVID, how do you do so safely and efficiently? How do you keep everybody in the room in appropriate PPE while still adequately transferring information to the services that are outside of the room? There's a ton in this paper. We can't go through all of it today, so I do recommend that you take a look at it. The only other note that I want to make before I get out of the way and let Dr. Kosravani talk to you is in the original recording of this presentation, he is referring to some slides that were on the screen. I wasn't able to fully convert this for audio only, so you'll hear some of those references, and it is worth taking a look. If you go to the ASAP Equal website, and the link for that will be in the show notes, you can see the slides that he did this off of. All right, without any further pause, I'm going to let Dr. Kosravani take it away and you'll hear me add some emphasis and break in here a little bit, but mostly he's just going to run with this thing.
1: As everybody knows, stroke continues to be an important you know, medical emergency and a medical condition despite COVID-19. Some of the challenges that patients have faced during the pandemic, which has resulted in multiple societies putting out a call to essentially say patients should still come to the hospital because folks are not coming in or delaying coming in, especially with things like minor stroke and TIA, which could be harbingers of uh, additional larger strokes coming down the line. So stroke continues to be very important. And COVID-19 has really taxed the entire obviously healthcare system, but also st- stroke pathways. So meaning everything right from what happens in the emergency department to what happens on admission, intensive care, discharge, rehabilitation, and even in the outpatient setting. And so some of the challenges that have led to this have been people having to stay home because of actual stay-at-home orders, depending on where you're living, fear of obviously getting COVID-19 from coming to a health facility, the social isolation, maybe lack of detection of symptoms. And as we'll just talk about very briefly as an introduction, there might have been causes, you know, of mortality due to stroke, for example, from large vessel occlusions or other types of clots that may have resulted in fatality uh, or morbidity and mortality due to this condition that may not have been fully diagnosed as stroke, but may have actually been a player in there. So it's definitely been a challenge for stroke systems. And I think one message we want to give to patients is that, you know, stroke remains an important diagnosis, an important condition and come to hospital. And of course, uh, hammering in those points of if there are facial weakness or, or you you know, limb weakness or speech impediment, that time still is of the essence and people should come to hospital. With regards to COVID 19 as the clinical sort of syndrome and, and the SARS CoV 2 virus itself, it's important to remember that it is really still a very new virus and our understanding of it is only on the basis of a few months despite feeling like an eternity. It is, you know, not the most lethal infectious disease agent we've seen. You know, case fatality ranges around on an average 3% when you look at across all countries, but there's a diversity of fatality from this as a condition. And what's really interesting is that it is asymptomatic in a large proportion of individuals, as you know, which is the hard problem of understanding when is it a factor, when is it a player in a patient's clinical presentation such as stroke, when is it causal, when is it a bystander, and how does that impact what we do in a stroke situation. What we'll be talking today about is mostly about how it impacts the acute care portion of it, but some of the things I'll be talking to you about have to do with the entire system. Another interesting thing just before we move on from the neurobiology of it is that it definitely appears to cause a spectrum of neurologic involvement, including obviously the stuff that most people know about, loss of smell and taste, and osmia and agusia. Now very good science coming that there is viral particles in the epithelial cells causing those problems. But in the context of stroke, large vessel occlusions have been shown to be definitely there. And there's a concept that's emerging is that it causes inflammation and probably inflammation in the, in the vessels. And it can cause a spectrum of large vessel occlusion. You know, there might be microthrombotic states, uh, microvascular changes, and even vasculitis has been described. And it obviously impacts other portions of the nervous system manifesting as more broad entities. With regards to what we're talking about here is about the acute management of stroke. Uh, so in the emergency department and maybe, you know, how when patients are brought in directly uh, either to uh, emergency department or critical care setting is this concept of the code stroke, which many centers have done It's a way of prioritizing what we do for an acute stroke patient. It's very important to call it a code stroke. And the word code really does impart that sense of vigilance, the hyperacute nature of it. And But what we also want to impart as part of this talk is to talk about that it, it brings on a sense of nuance but measured urgency, meaning that, The care team safety, the provider safety, the patient safety, and the system that's involved in caring for that patient should not be compromised by, for example, a rush. At the same time, there needs to be good vigilance of actually looking after these patients because we know that it's still important to treat stroke in an efficacious manner, in a quick manner. For example, door-to-needle times, door to groin puncture times if you're at a center that does thrombectomy. All of these are still very important as they impart a good functional outcome for the patient if uh, our care is provided in a timely manner. And so we have to kind of on one hand balance being quick and being efficacious, being vigilant, at the same time protecting the team and also protecting the patient. And of course, other patients who may be in hospital completely for other conditions. And so why is that important? Well, as a code stroke comes in, how we behave as, as far as the environment, how we get them to the CT scan, how we bring them back, contamination of healthcare providers, other patients, the environment, all those things still matter. And these are additional things we previously did not have to worry about, but now we do. So the concept of a protected code stroke emerges then as a way of saying we're still going to run a code stroke. We're going to have a sense of nuanced urgency with precision, with the goal of getting the patient the best outcome. But at the same time, we're going to protect the healthcare team, the environment, and of course, the patient themselves by making sure everything runs smoothly. The protected code stroke basically has two parts. The first part has to do with screening. And this screening can be done really uh, right at the point of contact with the patient. So many EMS systems or emergency medical services, ambulances, and so on, are able to pre-screen, even from the call, about any infectious symptoms, any prodromes of infection, travel, things like that. And we now obviously know that it's in the community and there's community spread. So you might say to yourself, well, why does screening even matter? And the reason it matters is that, as we'll talk about, it may be prudent to be running every code stroke as a protected code stroke, but not every single patient can then afford to go under droplet contact isolation and to, God forbid, a negative pressure room and things like that. So there still has to be some element of triage and prioritization. And that's where screening still is important. So in general, we like to screen for the infectious kind of constellation, the fever, cough, things like chest pain, dyspnea. As you may have also heard, there's other things like GI symptoms that have been very well described in up to 10% of patients with COVID-19. So any of these screening features that are positive, then the code stroke should be run as this protected code stroke designation. And we can talk about how maybe every code, in fact, should be protected if the situation allows or the resources available allow. And then after the code has completed, based on screening, based on additional collateral information, one can decide whether that patient should go to a COVID unit, whether they should just have testing done, go to a regular unit, or even have no testing done at all. The other important point is that if you can't screen the patient, meaning that they can't provide any history, whether they have a decreased level of consciousness, or they have exam features that are suggesting an alternate diagnosis, such as if they're coming in with presyncope, or if they have profound hypoxia and are having neurologic symptoms, or they're hypotensive and they still have neurologic symptoms, things that suggest that there could be an alternate diagnosis, those patients should be considered as a protective code stroke. And of course, if you can't provide a screen, it's still important to try to get that screen in the coming, I would say, four to six hours, ideally. And of course, within the first 24 hours of admission, ideally. So I know it's in the community, but screening still helps triage and prioritization. And if they can't be screened, then I would proceed with a protected code stroke. And if you're a center that is able to make all your codes protected, I think that's prudent, given what we have seen and what we may see in a second wave. Nonetheless, the threshold for making a code stroke a protected one should be low, and I believe that any member of the team should be able to do that. For example, the charge nurse, the nurse that may receive the patient, whether it's triage or in the department, emergency physician, stroke physician internal medicine. So if you're in a situation where not every code is one, the threshold to make it so should be uh, low. And of course, calling it a protected code stroke helps because it unifies the team around the same goal. The second part of a protected code stroke deals with what I call the action items. We're going to now put on our important sort of personal protective equipment. And part of that is to try to start making some decisions about what's going to happen with this patient. And are we safe to go to the scanner and so on and so forth. So the first part is use of personal protective equipment. Many hospitals have their own practice, but in general, the mode of transmission outside of performing an AGMP or a very close space where there is things like suctioning going on and no ventilation, outside of those cases, protection against droplets is the most important protection because droplets have the largest amount of infectious particles and droplets are generally considered to be particles that are essentially bigger than 5 micrometers. Whereas when we talk about aerosolization, it includes both airborne and droplets. And aerosolization implies then particles less than 5 micrometers, which would be things that are essentially airborne, and droplets that are greater than 5 microns, which are considered droplet. But droplets are still predominantly the most infectious. And so it's important to know how to put on PPE correctly. And some of the nuances here include a full sleeve gown, surgical mask, gloves that are ideally extended cuffs, meaning that they extend beyond just the wrist area. They're a bit longer, therefore covering the interface between the wrist and uh, the cuff. And of course, things like eye protection is important, such as a face shield or goggles. Uh, some people are wearing goggles underneath their face shield. That's also perfectly fine. And also some form of hair bonnet. The threshold of stabilizing a patient before going to a CAT scan in the context of a code stroke is now probably more important. In the past, we may have taken a patient that's a bit more tenuous, potentially to the scan, just we can get a quick scan and come back. In this time, you may have to be a bit more careful. I'm not saying that everyone needs to be obviously intubated, but for patients that require a high amount of oxygen or they look like they're having trouble being flat, we have to think very carefully before going to a scanner because once we lay them flat, it might be a bit of a problem. And then now we're dealing with a much difficult situation trying to resuscitate or partially resuscitate someone who's having other systemic issues in the CT scanner. And, you know, these patients may not necessarily have a stroke, but unfortunately, some patients can definitely present with both, right? And so it's important to kind of be mindful of that there are ways of circumventing that. So even if a patient needs a high amount of oxygen, like a non-rebreather mask, make sure your center has access to or you think about having non-rebreather masks that have a filter on the exhalation port, for example. In general, we've been trying to stay away most sites from taking anything that can cause aerosolization during a code stroke with us. So for example, not using things like BiPAP or high flow, trying to get away with more passive amounts of higher oxygen content, such as high flow nasal prongs or non-rebreather with some form of exhalation filter. Depending on your center, you'll always usually have support, obviously, from your emergency department colleagues, or you are the emergency department physician who's doing this. And in those cases, thinking about two, three steps ahead of time, especially for these sick patients, is really important. What we want to return back to now is the concept of something called the safety lead. The safety lead is someone that is really not necessarily part of the coat stroke itself, as we'll talk about. They're usually outside the room. And that safety lead ensures that there's meticulous donning and doffing of PPE. And that person could really be any clinical person. It could be a nurse, obviously. It could even be folks like portering service or transport. Anybody who knows how to put this stuff on can be a safety lead to make sure one's doing it correctly. So now we're going to talk about an important aspect of just beyond the protective coat stroke. It's how do you actually make all this work? So our tools are obviously only as good as the people that are able to deliver those tools. And this concept is something called crisis resource management. So it turns out that codes, whether it's a code stroke or a code blue, which are these high stakes scenarios, are not limited just to medicine. In fact, as you can imagine, pilots, folks in the military armed forces, they all have to deal with this. And in fact, Something in the past, which was called crew resource management or cockpit resource management, has been adapted to something called crisis resource management. And CRM is our tool in emergency medicine and critical care to try to make sure that we are able to get behind the same mission as a team and to take care of ourselves and also each other while we're in a high-stakes task such as a code stroke or any resuscitation. So it's important to spend a bit of time talking about it. So crisis resource management really has these principles that has to do with understanding triage and prioritization, making sure that there is role clarity for all the team members that are involved, situational awareness of the situation as a whole, but also our our own behavior, our own physiology, and being cognizant of one's cognitive load. A cognitive load is how much things essentially you have on your mind at that time while you're trying to do a complicated task. And of course, role designation and having good awareness helps one person to reduce their own cognitive load, but also that of the team. Communication is super important during a code, especially in the code stroke and so-called closed loops of communication, meaning that a request is sent out to an individual and the request is asked for that individual to report back that they have received that information or have completed the task that's being asked. And obviously debriefing and simulation are important. The reason all of these are important is because now during a code stroke, we have to worry about cross contamination of either the, you know, the environment or the healthcare providers with the patient. And so one of the most important things is exercising these principles and the concept of a safety leader, which we talked about just previously is super important because that person, their job is not to get the NIH stroke scale or get the IVs or order the CT or things like that. Their job is to make sure that the team is donning and doffing correctly, that they're not exposed, meaning a part of their PPE is malfunctioning or it's coming off. And also that the environment is not being cross contaminated uh, during, for example, transport to the CT and back.
0: That was a ton of information. I'm gonna stop here just quickly to summarize and, and give you a little bit of a break to think about this. Just a reminder, Dr. Kosravani is using the term protected code stroke to mean The terminology for a maximum protection of staff during an infectious epidemic and code indicating the seriousness or the immediacy of the event. So you've got this thing that you've got to do very quickly, but you also need to make sure your staff is staying healthy and protected. A lot of the principles brought into this discussion so far match existing best practices for high-risk situations in other areas in the emergency department, preparation, communication, role assignment, protocolization, and repetition.
1: So I'll give you some examples of things that we've thought about at our center that may be applicable to your center. So one of the things we like to do is to do a pre-brief when possible. Now again, this sounds like it needs to have a lot of people but it actually doesn't. Even if the team is two people or three individuals, it's still important to say that there's a code stroke coming and to have a checklist. And this checklist that we've come up with is is essentially called a zero-point survey. And it's called zero-point because it's done before everything happens. It's the the point zero of the resuscitation. And so the first part of it is an acronym, STEP which involves you know, preparing mentally that you're about to have a potentially acute situation, that you're, you're mentally and physically ready, that the team knows that who's going to be running the code stroke. In, in fact, if that's just one individual, that's still important for that individual to say, I am the code stroke leader. I'm going to be examining the patient. I'm going to give the go ahead of when we're ready to go to the CT scanner. And obviously that person communicates with the rest of the team. And to be aware of the environment, the pathways should all be optimized in the hospital to make sure that, you know, there's the least amount of contamination as patients go from CT, from the emergency department to CT and back again, where donning and doffing occurs in the CT scanner. So, for example, if someone is donned in the resuscitation room or triage, they go to the CT, maybe that nurse or individual could now remain for example donned outside the doors not necessarily in the control room or if they're going to go in the control room that the gloves and the gown come off but the face shield and mask stay on with cognizance of not contaminating the environment so those sort of things are really important to think about ahead of time and of course the patient the quick primary survey of what's going to happen with the sort of their stability and of course the NIH stroke scale this is an example at our center so generally the team leader stands at the end of the bed and they can proceed to get the NIH stroke scale while one of our nursing colleagues is establishing vascular access and things like that. Very important to think about what needs to happen and what does not need to happen. So, for example, 12-lead ECG is not necessarily important for all stroke patients when they're coming in initially as a code stroke. It might cause delays in door to needle or door to groin puncture. And if the patient is completely stable, or compensated is probably a better word, then we may not need to do everything right at that time. Maybe the key is to just get them organized and make sure that the patient is well addressed and then go to the scanner to maintain those door-to-needle times and the efficacy. Something that is really important, which is illustrated in that red box, is who is actually in the room. So typically one doctor is needed with one nurse and there's an optional second person that could be a second nurse or a respiratory therapist. It very much depends on your center. Another key point is to minimize extraneous examination maneuvers, such as use of stethoscopes or things that can cause cross-contamination. One of the key elements of a protective coat stroke is placing a mask on the patient because we know that having a mask on the patient really reduces the amount of droplets that could go into the environment. Outside the room, you could see that the safety lead's job is there and the safety lead can ensure before everyone goes in that they've donned donned correctly, but also to look for any problems. What's really important is that if the patient is deteriorating, as is common practice, we want to have the most experienced members of the team doing the most challenging parts of the task, right? So for example, if on the contrast, you're in a very big center, this is not the time to have more junior people in the room, for example, during an intubation, because it's a very high risk procedure, they don't need to be there, have the most experienced providers considered doing that task with the most amount of staff that's really required at the basic level. With regards to communication across the room, At our center, what we've done is just a low-cost technique, which is using baby monitors. And that's a simple way of keeping that environment very clean. Charting and things like that obviously cannot be easily done inside the room. Some of this could be done outside the room. Prior to departure to CT, it's important to do a quick survey to make sure everything's in order so that we don't get into trouble either going to the CT or having to run back and get stuff or get into trouble at the scanner. Again, this is quite reasonable that stuff like this happens, and I'm not saying that it's an impossibility. It's just that during the time of COVID, this has a lot of risks both to the providers and also the patient. So a very quick checklist that we're suggesting here is to say, are we satisfied with the primary survey, which includes the ABCs, if you will, and the NIH stroke scale? Is the transport ready? And are we going to take some stuff with us? Depending on your center, you may be transporting thrombolysis with you to the scanner. IV access is okay. Blood work has been sent. CT knows we're coming such that we don't arrive there and are in the hallway, uh, you know, with a potential patient that may have COVID-19. And let's say they were to deteriorate. It's not a good scene to sort of arrive there and no one's ready for us. We want to have a very streamlined process to get there. They know we're coming. We go there. We get the scan. We come right back. And are there any additional medications we need to take with us, like antiemetics or antihypertensives or things like that? So this is a prior to departure assessment. And this is an important piece you know that may not and obviously is not necessary for every single code stroke, but code strokes that are challenging, code strokes that have bad outcomes, and code strokes that have good outcomes. There should always be a debriefing.
0: Unfortunately, that's going to be the end of our time for today. The very tail end of this was a discussion about debriefing but it really required the visual resources to make sense. So take a look at Dr. Kosravani's slides that are available on the ASAP equal website to look at the tools that he uses and the way he recommends structuring a debrief. And this can apply across all situations, not just for the protected code stroke. This has been Another episode of the ASEP Equal podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASEP Equal series through the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or at the ASEP Equal website, www.acep.org backslash equal. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jason. Woodsmd at gmail.com. I definitely love hearing from you. If you've got suggestions, things you want to hear in the future, questions, follow ups, please send them my direction. Thanks for listening.